Hello, this is Malia Warner. Welcome to selected readings from my book, Lies of the Magpie, My Journey Healing Through Postpartum Depression and Chronic Illness. Today's reading comes from chapter 12. First, I want to apologize for not posting a chapter last week. I was busy researching and reading and deliberating and deciding and finally signing a contract with a publishing company. Woohoo! If you listened to episode 37 of Power Principles, then you know that I have found a publisher. It has been a long journey. I am nervous as can be and excited and a little overwhelmed at the work ahead. And for those of you who are writers, aspiring writers, you know what I'm talking about. And I want to just, for you especially, give a little summary of what I found. So essentially what I have found is a hybrid publisher. So it is a mix between completely self-publishing and traditionally publishing. And what it essentially means for me is that I will get 100% of the profits from my books, which is absolutely amazing. So as my son asked, well, then how does this publishing company make any money if it doesn't take any portion of my book? Basically, it is a tuition-based program that takes you through a series of steps all the way from beginning writing skills to submitting a book proposal to cover design to interior design through editing all the way up to, and this was what was really the selling point for me, marketing, distribution, how to get onto Amazon and Kindle and in bookstores and interviews and speaking engagements and book signings and book launches and all of those things. It makes me a nervous ball of energy. Basically, I am investing in myself. I am gambling on my writing ability and banking on the fact or the hope, I guess, that my writing is good enough to sell books and to recoup the investment. So it is a decision, and like I said on the podcast last week, a dilemma. And any of you who have researched publishing know that essentially the tug between self-publishing and traditional publishing boils down to self-publishing, you put a lot of money out of your own pocket up front with no guarantees of return on investment. Traditional publishing, the publisher basically covers your expenses so you don't have the out-of-pocket, but also there's no guarantee of return on investment and any return that you get, you get like 10% of it. So pros and cons, big time, both ways. I'm excited. I really feel like I found a match that is right up my alley. I'm someone that you just show me how to do it and I can figure it out. And I like that this program has lessons that you go through. And as you progress through them, you will end up with a beautifully finished published product in the end. And that is the goal. So all of you who have been listening to these chapters, I honestly don't know what this means for being able to continue to record chapters of Lies of the Magpie. Really, I own my own work. I'm completely autonomous in that sense, which I really like. And so I believe I can continue to podcast chapters weekly. I think the real issue is the increased pace of editing as well as finishing the coursework and how recording and posting these chapters fit into that not 100% sure about that. So how about no guarantees? How about if I just make no promises and just figure it out step by step as it goes? Oh, and for you writers listening, if you want information about this publishing program, just email me maliawarner at gmail.com 
and I'm more than happy to email you back with the details. It was through another writer that I found the program and it's always good to check things out and see if they're a good match for you. Okay, let's dive in, Lies of the Magpie. So today's selection I'm calling chapter 12, but as I've been redoing and especially working on the weaving of this opening part one, I'm really seeing that the chapters are going to be all rearranged. But since I don't know what chapter this will actually be, we'll keep calling it chapter 12. Lies of the Magpie, chapter 12. I have heard of women who labored in the hospital for upwards of 24 hours before at last giving the final push and welcoming their newborn into the world after a lengthy and excruciating ordeal. In my mind, nothing could be more miserable than laboring for hours or even days in a hospital, strapped to a bed, chained to monitors. My own grandmother labored for 24 to 48 hours with most of her 12 children, but at least she was at home. I'd much prefer laboring at home where I can move around, distract myself from the pain of contractions by washing dishes or running a load of laundry, taking a walk, or even hiding in my closet. However, being in this car is turning out to be worse than being strapped to a hospital bed. I'm all kinked behind the steering wheel. I can't stretch out my legs in the short space between contractions. I'm stuck upright in a seated position, which is harder than contracting while lying down. What I want to do is to pull the car over and walk around, but I'm too scared to change positions. I'm afraid that sitting is the only thing keeping my bags of water intact. Standing up might allow the baby to drop that last centimeter until my cervix won't be able to withstand the pull of gravity. I am afraid if I exit the car now, I won't be pregnant when I get back in. Growing a human being inside of you is a miraculous thing. Even on this, my fourth pregnancy, I'm astonished by the photos in my pregnancy books showcasing the stages of fetal development, from the first division of cells to the beginning thump of the minuscule heartbeat. When I was 10, my fifth grade class took a field trip to our local clinic, where the lab director showed us a glass jar with a human fetus floating in formaldehyde. The boys, of course, made crude Frankenstein jokes. Many of the girls screamed, cried, and turned their heads away. The baby had been donated by a woman who had miscarried at 12 weeks. I stared, feeling appalled at the indignity of keeping a baby in a jar, but also fixated on every minute detail formed to perfection, down to the perfectly formed fingernail, as the lab director pointed out, on the baby's pinky finger. It would be several years before I got my first menstruation cycle, but even at age 10 I wondered what it would feel like to have something like that growing inside of me, with heart, mouth, nose, toes, and fingernails. Me, the glass jar filled with amniotic fluid, not formaldehyde, encasing a living person that would grow and become a human being. That is the artistic wonder of pregnancy and birth, to bring into existence something absolutely unique which has never been created before. But I wasn't thinking about the miracle of life last fall when, unbeknownst to me, that miracle began taking place silently during the few hours I slept restlessly, the zygote making its journey down the fallopium tube to my uterus while I secured my hairpiece and dashed down the hall gathering the visual aids for my seminary object lessons. Cell splitting. Automatically, I didn't even tell them to. From one, to two, to four, to eight, to sixteen, 
while I picked up Kate from preschool, the blastocyst naturally dividing to form the basis of muscle and skeleton, spine and skin, stomach and lungs. Unaware of the intricate chain of mechanisms triggering to form new life, I only knew this, that despite having sheltered, nourished, grown, and brought forth three unique individuals, I still hadn't achieved a sufficient level of success in my life. The raw hurt of Aaron leaving me at the table burned fresh in my memory. I was invisible. This I knew for certain. Being a mother, no matter how miraculous, just really didn't impress anybody. That fall, I wasn't interested in miracles and creation. I was fixated on proving that, despite having birthed babies, I still had a brain, intelligence, and could be a successful contributing human on the planet. Indeed, having another baby was not part of my prove-that-I'm-more-than-just-a-mom strategy last fall. Erin and I were not trying to get pregnant. Yes, we wanted to have another baby, but not necessarily this year. Because of the unexpectedness, I can't be certain, but the miracle of cells dividing and embryonic formation was likely happening inside my womb exactly the time I was shingling the roof of my in-law's house. Aaron's parents did not ask me to shingle their roof. We had traveled to Utah for fall break in October. The mountain trees were peacocks sporting their colored leaves. We loved every part of the scenic drive, except for Tanner's tantrums. Boxing such a free spirit into the confines of a car seat awakened the wrath of the demon toddler. At first, Kate cried in protest every time we threatened Tanner that we would tie him to the roof of the van if he didn't stop wailing. But after a few hours of being trapped in a traveling sound container, eardrums bursting as a result of her brother's decibel levels, even Kate began threatening him. Ironically, the reason we were going to Utah was to see my parents, who were flying home after living in Cambodia for 18 months. They had never met Tanner in person, as he was born only three days after they left. Multiple times during the drive, I questioned whether I wanted my parents to know I had birthed a demon child. We stayed with Aaron's parents for a few days before my parents' plane landed. The moment we pulled our van into their driveway and released Tanner from his buckles, he transformed into an angel child, running straight into Grandma's hug, then sprinting for Grandpa's playground. The next morning, Aaron and his brothers gathered louders, crowbars, and hammers to help my father-in-law replace his roof. Grant didn't ask or expect me to climb to the roof and pop up the old shingles, but I pulled on a pair of leather gloves and was the first one up the ladder, leaving my mother-in-law to watch my kids and fill their many requests for drinks and entertainment. Being on the roof had little to do with any desire on my part to lighten the load of the Warner men. I knew enough by now to know that chasing the kids for a day actually exhausted me more than manual labor. Staying with my in-laws gave me an opportunity to catch a break from kid wrestling. Shingling the roof wasn't a chore for me. It was a vacation. I knelt on my knees driving nails and looked down at Rita pushing Danny and Kate in the swings and lifting Tanner up the slide for the umpteenth time. I had gotten out of the trenches. That night, the work crew descended from our place above it all to eat the dinner Rita had prepared while chasing my three energy balls. From across the table, my brother-in-law said, Wow, Malia, you're a tough woman. You were a beast ripping off those shingles. 
Aaron looked up, and I thought I noticed a twinkle of admiration in his eyes. I scooped two heaps of mashed potatoes onto my plate, though I would feast more on those words of praise and sense of accomplishment. We passed the pan of roast, hot rolls, and my mother-in-law's home-canned raspberry jam. Nobody acknowledged how exhausted Rita must have been. Nobody said, Wow, Mom, you're a tough woman. You must have a ton of strength and patience to manage an 18-month-old demon child who poses as the most adorable creature on the planet. No one, not even me, said to her, That was amazing work you did today taking care of Danny, Kate, and Tanner. On Saturday, my hands were blistered as I hugged my mom and dad. We had all gathered near the baggage claim of the Salt Lake Airport. The grandkids held a long yellow poster with painted lettering that read, Welcome home, Grandma and Grandpa. Tanner went easily into my mother's arms and accepted her snug embrace, but he wanted little to do with the six-foot-eight giant of a tower we told him was Grandpa. He kept his distance, sucking on his middle and ring finger and watching the crowd of cousins talk at once in excitement. My brothers walked with my dad towards the luggage circle. I snapped a picture of them from behind. My dad in the middle, his long arms draped around two sons on each side. They were going to gather the luggage, to do the heavy lifting, while we women stayed back chatting and periodically counting little heads and saying, Can anyone see Cassandra? Growing up, I was often jealous that my dad took his boys outside to work and left me inside to help mom prepare dinner and clean up the house. For me, outdoors was adventure, challenge, feats of strength. When I was about 12, dad and all the boys left for the weekend to go on their annual father's and son's camp out. Anise, my mom, and I spent the weekend scrubbing black soot off the stairwells. We were remodeling the house, and Dad had rented a bobcat machine to dig out an extension to the basement. Paul got to drive the cat. Even Vern got a turn powering the cat. Dad told me to stop whining and get to work filling buckets with dirt to dump out in the field. Then they all left to go camping, and we scrubbed the residue off the walls. I always wanted to be outside doing what my dad and brothers were doing. It seemed men got the fun and glory part of any job, and women got to clean up silently behind them. I always wanted to prove that I was as strong as, could do any job just as well as a man. As my dad came back towards us with my brothers wheeling the suitcase, I took a shoulder bag from his hands and offered to hold it for him. My thumb was black from too many times missing the shingle nails. My palms were blistered. I noticed my dad's hands as I took his bag. He had been doing missionary work for 18 months, and I wondered what that missionary work entailed because his hands, as always, were speckled with blackened fingernails. Eventually, the airport became uncomfortable, and we grew hungry and wanted to move our family party to someplace more intimate than the baggage claim area of Salt Lake International. In past years, we would have all driven to Castledale and stayed in the home where we grew up, spending days doing work projects in the fields and house. But there was no pink brick house to gather to. Two months earlier, while they were still living in Cambodia, my parents had sold the house and the farm. Years later, I would return to my hometown for the first time since our house was sold. Acting as tour guide, I would point out to my children where I attended elementary school, the turn where I had my worst bicycle accident, and the big sledding hill. We would drive up the lane to our pink brick house, but that was as close as we could get. 
I felt bad for the family living there. No matter how unique, wonderful, and special they were certain to be when you got to know them, in a small town they would always be identified as the people who bought the day home. A few years before they left for Cambodia, during the time when my parents are living in Cambodia wasn't a phrase any of us ever imagined speaking, my siblings and I gathered from our separate lives to celebrate the 4th of July. The original plan was an extended family camping trip on our mountain property east of Carbon County. Nine Mile was gorgeous land covered in tall pines and quicken aspen trees. It was a little piece of God's real estate. But the dry summer caused the Forest Service to enforce a no-campfire rule, and what is the point, really, of sleeping on rocks without the perk of campfire stories and roasted marshmallows? The change of plans meant we gathered, instead, at our pink brick house up the lane. When you grow up in a farming family, there is no such thing as a relaxing summer weekend. Every family gathering, whether it be a wedding, baptism, or funeral, included at least one big work project. This particular weekend, one bold person, I don't know who started it, decided it was time to clean out the fruit room. Aaron and I pulled up to find two enormous pits dug into what had previously been the strawberry patch. A circle of grandkids had been assigned to open the glass mason jars and dump the contents into the pits. Look at this! Ashley came running to me, showing off what had become the souvenir of the day. Look at the date, she said, pushing a jar of pickles into my chest. In my mother's handwriting, the flat ceiling lid was labeled September 9, 1968. The pickles were nearly 35 years old. What was more remarkable, though, was that Anissa's birthday was September 10th. My mother had been canning pickles the day before she delivered Anise. She probably came home from the hospital and finished the batch. It reminded me of the faithful but homely wife, Olan, in Pearl Buck's book, The Good Earth, who left her work in the field only long enough to deliver her own child. When she returned a few hours later, her husband asked gruffly where she'd gone. She gestured slightly to the bundle she'd set in a box near a tree and returned to working the ground. Strong women, my mother, Olan, don't take time off life to labor for hours in a hospital bed, then weeks at home in bed for recovery. They work up to the moment the baby arrives, canning pickles or tending the earth, and return immediately to resume their task with barely an interruption. Canceling the piano conference to sit home merely because I was in labor and might have the baby was a ridiculous notion. God smiles on hardworking women and bestows upon them miracles and good fortune, just as Olan recovered the royal jewels during the Huang family demise and brought riches to her husband. Just as my mother delivered a baby girl two years to the day after Kevin's birth, exactly as the nurse had predicted. God favors piano teachers, right? Didn't Martin Luther say that next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise? At least, that's what was embroidered in the frame on the wall above one of my early teacher's pianos. Music teachers must be in a category similar to orphanage workers or Catholic nuns. The patience to sit through hours of chopsticks must earn a person extra credit points in heaven. But the way these contractions continue to escalate makes me question if I have done enough to merit God's good graces. Maybe I shouldn't have quit teaching seminary when I learned I was pregnant. 
Where does one draw the line between God's ability to work miracles and his expectation that I, as my dad would say, use the brain God put on my shoulders for a reason? There is that New Testament scripture that says, it is by grace we are saved after all we can do. So everything boils down to this question. Have I done enough this year to qualify for God's saving grace in this moment? Do I deserve to be carried by his power through this conference weekend? Or is delivering my baby here in the hot desert sand God's way to teach me a lesson? What do I deserve in this moment? Do I deserve faith, grace, divine intervention? Or do I deserve to reap the harvest I've sown this past year? After the re-roofing slash welcome home from Cambodia trip, I struggled more and more to step out of bed at the sound of my 4.45 alarm. My hairpiece became more tangled, less smooth and shiny after being tossed off at night and not properly combed each morning. When I tried to sit and prepare a lesson, I fell sound asleep, drops of drool sticking to the pages of my Bible. Then, when I read Tanner books for a nap time, I also found myself snoozing. I thought the early mornings were catching up to me, until my November cycle didn't arrive. That was unusual. From the moment it first appeared, hot and heavy during a sleepover at my cousin's house soon after my 13th birthday, my period has not skipped a delivery, nor has it ever been late. I could set a calendar by my old faithful. As the weeks went by, the nausea hit. I carried a garbage can with a liner to the front of the seminary room next to me, just in case. But the real giveaway was the tightness in my bra. When not pregnant or nursing, I basically measure a double A, and I'm not talking batteries. A fuller chest was always a sure indication that pregnancy hormones were on the rise. Still, so taken aback by the possibilities and complications presented by this development, in mid-November I did something I'd never done before, not even with three pregnancies. I went to the pharmacy and bought a pregnancy test. That was my first experience watching for the appearance of those two colored lines. For a week after, I didn't say anything, not even to Aaron. Still, I called my OB office and scheduled an appointment with Dr. Woods. You're ready to do this again? Dr. Woods smiled, confirming what the two lines on my drugstore pregnancy test had shown. Yes, we are, I smiled hoping that if I smiled every time I thought about being pregnant, that the feelings of excitement would soon follow. I was glad he didn't ask if we had planned this pregnancy. Dr. Woods's courteous manner prevented him from inserting his nose into such personal business, even though his hand went into much more private places. But I knew plenty of other people who wouldn't practice such good bedside manners, and I would be asked, is this a planned pregnancy? I wished I had the guts to say, really, none of your business, but I knew I wouldn't. Still, I knew that my answer would be a resounding yes. I felt bad for the babies who came into the world on the tail of the words surprise uttered for nine months. I believed every child deserved to know that they were wanted, planned for, expected. And I felt completely honest in saying we had planned for this baby because we had planned to have this baby. We just hadn't necessarily chosen the timing. Dr. Woods and I discussed my history of preterm labor. The best thing you can do for this baby is to carry it to full term, he affirmed. Each baby tends to come faster than the one before, but you made it full term with your others. 
He consulted his 40-week calculation calendar and gave me the due date of June 29th. If you stay off your feet, stay hydrated, get plenty of rest, you won't need to worry about having a preemie next spring. I told him about teaching early morning seminary, not being able to fall asleep until after midnight for worrying about my lesson and my students, and waking up at 4.30 a.m. I told him that Aaron and I had decided to start a business and that I would be walking all over Dodge selling ads. Dr. Woods said, That is too risky. You need more sleep and to not take on the stress of a startup business. He wrote me a prescription to sleep from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. and to stay off my feet three hours every afternoon and absolutely no stress. You have three young children. Add being pregnant to that and your plate is full. Don't add anything else. Dr. Woods made multiple copies of the prescription for me to hand to anyone who questioned. At least, that's what I wished had happened. The truth is I left his office still trying to wrap my brain around another pregnancy and trying to imagine having a baby. Instead of thinking about preterm labor, I was still scanning my heart for those tingling feelings of baby excitement. I knew it would come. I love babies. I would take a baby any time God wanted to add another child to our family. I had just been caught by surprise. Awake in bed that night, I worked my own calculations. I had three more weeks of seminary until Christmas break. Already I was barely making it through the morning nausea. I prayed God would help me not to puke in front of those high schoolers. My schedule was overwhelming. If it were just about me, which I believed it was when I signed up for all these obligations, I would make it work. But my big worry was ending up on bed rest. With Tanner, I had been extra careful and had learned a few tricks to slow down preterm labor. Dr. Woods had agreed to let me try to regulate naturally without having to swallow those horrid breathing pills. I drank a lot of water and got off my feet as soon as I felt contractions coming on. And it had worked. I stayed off of medicine and out of labor delivery until week 37. And I still believed I could have lasted even longer if I hadn't panicked about those late night contractions. Already, the test ad selling I'd done had been grueling. I could hardly stay awake during afternoon piano lessons. In January, I would start selling ads full-time, whenever I could squeeze in an hour between dropping off or picking up Kate from preschool. Getting off my feet during the day wasn't in the cards. Going on five to six hours of sleep at night was not going to do good things for this baby. At the rate I was going, this baby would be a massive stress ball. By my calculations, when seminary resumed in January, I would be 16 weeks along. By March, I would be 26 weeks, about when my early contractions kicked in. As hard as I tried to convince myself that it would all be okay, I knew I couldn't teach seminary, piano lessons, chase three kids to three different locations at three different times of the day, all while selling ads, and stay off my feet enough to ward off preterm labor. But I had committed to seminary. No matter which way I turned, I would be letting people down. I couldn't back out of our partnership with Bob. I felt a duty to my piano students. Where else would my piano students go for lessons? There weren't other teachers in our area. Most of all, I felt a priority to give this baby the best chance for a healthy life. Giving up seminary was the obvious choice, really the only choice, but not the easy choice. To give this baby its best chance, I had to give up something, 
and I felt certain people around me would agree. I need to quit seminary, I said to Aaron. I absolutely agree, he nodded. You have got to focus on taking care of this baby. I wish that is what he had said. What he actually said was, why? I was hoping someone other than me would tell my seminary supervisors that I shouldn't keep teaching. I wished Dr. Woods had written me an excuse note. I wished Aaron had said he would go explain the situation. In the end, it was up to me. I thought it was most considerate to let my seminary supervisors know as soon as possible so they could have time over the Christmas break to find a replacement teacher, which I knew wouldn't be easy. The problem was that I preferred to wait as long as possible before telling people I was pregnant. Usually I could make it to 16 weeks before I started to show. It's what my mom had always done. She rolled her eyes at women who announced their pregnancy while the sheets were still warm. There's a well-told story from my hometown of a couple, a slower couple, who had found each other and happily married. Shortly after reception, the woman went happily from the grocery store to the courthouse singing, I'm going to have a baby. She caught my mom at the post office. Maureen, I'm going to have a baby. Congratulations, my mom said. When? The woman proudly answered, nine months from last night. After my first prenatal appointment, I waited two more weeks delivering over my who to tell list. Who absolutely should know before this group of seminary leaders, who were mostly strangers to me except for our common seminary position? If I was telling the seminary leaders, then I should probably tell my mom, who I expected to say, only 10 weeks? And my mother-in-law, who would be ecstatic. Of course, I would tell Anise. Those three could keep the secret and buy me time to think of the mandatory creative announcement for the rest of our family and friends. I told the seminary supervisors on a Friday, intentionally planning to drop the news on a weekend so I would have two days to let things simmer before I had to face them again. For some reason, we ended up having this confidential rendezvous in the church kitchen, with me pinned up against the island where countless potluck dishes had been gathered waiting for the ladies to remove their foil lids, stick them with serving spoons, and carry them to buffet tables. I rambled on and on, giving all the lead-up, how I'm a committed person who doesn't believe in letting people down. On and on, words I can't recall. Something about pregnant, and I don't usually tell people this early, so please, please don't tell anyone outside of this kitchen. Followed by my history of preterm labor complications, bed rest, plus this starting a business, and ending with, I'm telling you this now, this early, so you have the Christmas break to find another teacher, hoping they could see I was really trying to help. They all stared. No one said anything for what seemed like nine months. Every one of us frozen in the legitimate scenario which generated the term pregnant pause. And in that parturient silence, I didn't look down. I didn't hang my head. I stared back, looking from face to face, noticing mouths hanging open, chins dropped, brows lowered, lips bitten. Was that the sink dripping? Or was it the kitchen clock measuring off the seconds? And how was it that though no one spoke a word, I could hear the jumble of sentences coming at me? Why would you agree to teach if you were planning on having a baby? Why would you start teaching and then get pregnant? Do you realize the bind you've put us in? Where do you think we're going to find a replacement mid-year? I seriously considered confessing the fact that, although I am expecting, this pregnancy was not expected. But that sounded too close to saying this baby wasn't wanted, which wasn't at all true. 
wedged into that linoleum floored serving space facing three men in dark suits and ties and two women in dresses, I felt the tingle of elation stirring deeper in the inner core of me. This was more than a gut feeling. This sensation surfaced from deeper than my stomach or my bones or even my uterus. This sensation, old and familiar, came to me from that remote and proximal place. The location of the origin of my quintessence, a vast field nourished by the fountain of feminine essence, watered by rains of intuitive nurturing, encircled by clouds of comfort, shaded and protected by vast trees with deep, hearty roots. This sensitivity originated from the very birthplace of me, carrying now with it a nervous and delighted anticipation. As the words I'd spoken out loud lingered in the air around us, I am pregnant. This sensation expanded and spread. Excitement, rapture, the potential of creation, rousing every cell, waking each primal instinct, filling all the levels of me with the marrow of motherhood. Sister Wardell spoke first. Well, isn't that great for you? She was not congratulating me. Then, not directing her comments to me, she turned to Sister Ostregard. What are we going to do? Where are we going to find another teacher? I'm leaving next Wednesday for a two-week cruise. My husband and I have been so busy, we need to get away. Now I'm going to be stressed the whole time about finding another teacher. I don't know why she was pointing her dander at Sister Ostregard, who was the teacher for the 10th graders and who had no say in or responsibility for finding new teachers. As the tantrum progressed, Sister Wardell scuffed her feet across the linoleum, huffing, breathing harder with each sentence. The whole scene made me think that either she was an angry bull preparing to charge, or that she was trying to wipe the vexation of me off her feet onto the kitchen mat. The whole scene was painful. It would have been easier to keep teaching. At last, it was Brother Anderson who intervened. We are happy for you. We will find a replacement. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for joining me for this selected reading from Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 12. If I'm not back here next week with another chapter, the good news is the entire book will be available in audio form by Mother's Day 2020. Have a great week, my friends.